Thank you, Susan. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Bill Gorman, and I serve as the campus pastor here at the Brookside campus. And let me just add my welcome to Susan's. We're so glad that you're here with us this morning, and uh, just delighted that you've you've uh, chosen to to do that. So we're so glad that you're here, especially if this is your first time. Really, really glad um, that you are here with us this morning. Well, uh, before we take uh, a few minutes here and look at this text that uh, Susan read for us in Matthew chapter 25. Um, I want to just pause and, and ask uh, that God would help us in understanding it, and that he would open our hearts uh, to understand um, what it is that he's placed in, in his word. So let's do that right now. Uh, Father in heaven, we are uh, so thankful that you have uh, revealed to us not only um, what has happened in the past and recorded that, but that you've also given us insight into what is coming. And I pray that as Jesus here in this passage talks about what is coming um, in the future, uh, that we would uh, be encouraged, that we would be challenged um, by your Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the basic questions uh, that, that all of us ask at, at one point or another in our lives, in addition to, to where, where did we come from, how did, how did we get here, is, is what happens when we die? Uh, what, what happens in the end? Uh, what, what happens at the end of the world? Is there an end of the world? Does it just go on forever, or is there an end coming? Well, one of the bands that, uh, that I enjoy listening to that frequently wrestles with this question is, is an indie rock band uh, called uh, Death Cab for Cutie. And, and uh, they're one of my favorite bands, not just because I really enjoy their sound, but I truly think that some of their, their writing, the thoughtfulness and the depth of their writing, uh, speaks to some of these big questions of life. And in their 2011 song, St. Peter's, Cathed- Peter's Cathedral, they, they get to the heart of what some of us here, I think, believe about the end, as well as uh, perhaps what many of us fear might be the case in the end. And so I just wanted to play you a, a part of this song. So take a listen to just the second verse of the song. The last part of that, uh, that verse is that when our hearts stop ticking, this is the end, that there's nothing past this. There's nothing past this. There's nothing past this. So the question is, is this really all there is? Is this life it? Is there truly nothing past this? When we die, will it all just stop for us? Now, now, this might sound appealing at one level. No, no heaven, no hell, no, no reincarnation. It's just over. But, but if we hold on to that view that, that there's really nothing past this, we give up something massive. We give up something that we, that we wrestle with, that we fight for, and that is meaning. We give up depth of meaning in our lives. Does my life really count for anything then? Yes, I'm, I'm a Christian, and, and yes, I'm, I'm even a pastor, but there are times when I wrestle with that question. I wonder what it's all for, don't you? Does my life really count for anything? We want to know that, that it meant something, that our choices matter. But, but if there's nothing past this, does it really matter if I, if I worked hard or if I didn't? If I lived a good life or not, if, if I was a good parent or not, if, if I was selfish or if I was generous, whether I lied or told the truth, if there's nothing past this, does it, any of that matter? Well, the good news of Jesus' teaching in this passage that, that we just heard read is that, that life isn't for nothing. 
It isn't all meaninglessness. It isn't all for nothing. As we look at this passage in Matthew, Jesus' teaching reveals three reasons why it isn't all for nothing. That it isn't all meaningless. And it's not all for nothing because history is going somewhere. That's the first thing we're going to see. It isn't all for nothing because there's a verdict coming. And lastly, it isn't all for nothing because the beginning or the end is just the beginning. So it's not, history is going somewhere, a verdict is coming, and the end is only the beginning. So this morning, uh, we are coming to the close of, of a series where we've been asking the question, does it really matter what we believe? And, and so it's fitting this morning that we ask the question, does it really matter what we believe about the end? So as we ask this question, let's look at Jesus' teaching here in Matthew chapter 25. And the first thing that we see when we look at Jesus' teaching is that, is that history is going somewhere. If you notice verses 31 and 32, the very beginning of the text we heard read, it says, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. And before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now, we're jumping into the very last part of, of a much longer set of teaching that Jesus was uh, doing, started back in the previous chapter, Matthew chapter 24. And so let me set the scene for you of, of where, what's happening in this, in this passage. So Jesus and his disciples were in Jerusalem, and the disciples were admiring the temple, the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, which was the most magnificent building in all of Jerusalem. And, and as they are ooing and aahing over the temple, Jesus sort of kills the mood and says, yeah, you know, but this thing's going to be completely destroyed someday, don't you? And this immediately gets their attention, and, and of course they want to know, Jesus, when is this going to happen? I mean, it would be like if, if you and I were standing out in front of the, the Kauffman Center in downtown before a concert, and we're all admiring the beauty of the architecture and the design of this place, and then I kind of offhandedly say, oh, and by the way, this is going to be completely destroyed. Um, Jesus immediately has their attention. And he goes on to describe when this is going to happen. He begins teaching about the end. And the destruction of the temple would come uh, about 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, but that was just the beginning of the, the end. But Jesus describes here in this text what he goes on to describe is much more than just the destruction of the temple. He speaks about the end of all things. And one thing that Jesus is unmistakably clear about is that history is going somewhere. There is an end coming, and it culminates with Jesus' return. This is what we read about in verses 31 and 32. Now, not even Jesus knows exactly when that time is going to be. Uh, he makes that clear in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. He says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So, so anyone who takes the Bible seriously, who takes Jesus seriously, is not going to try to predict the time when Jesus returns. If Jesus doesn't know, um, then, then I don't think we're going to figure it out. I mean, but perennially there are people who, who do think they figured it out. Um, but Jesus says you're not going to know uh, when it is. But what that means is that his return is imminent. It means that it could happen 10,000 years from now, or, or it could happen before I finish the end of this sentence. Okay, no, yeah, we're, still, we're still here. Um, but it could happen at any, at any time. But even though Jesus doesn't know when he will return, he does know what will happen when he does. 
So when he returns, Jesus will come in glory, there will be angels with him, and he will sit on his glorious throne to provide a judgment, a verdict on the world and the people in it. Um, Christians, as my prof in grad school used to say, Christians are, are roadies, not wheelies. Christians are roadies, not wheelies. Let me explain what he, what he meant by that. He says, Christians believe that, that we are on a road that has a destination, an endpoint, a telos, that it's going somewhere. That, that like every good story, it has a beginning and a middle and an end to it. And this stands in, in contrast to many Eastern forms of, of religious thought, which posit that history is, is a wheel, a giant wheelie, um, that there's a, it's a constant turning, a repeating, a, a never-ending cycle, sort of recapitulating over and over again, and, and for the unenlightened, uh, unenlightened a cycle of, of reincarnation. And the hope in, in that kind of a religious view is that you actually eventually lose yourself, you lose your personality into the, what is the, the reality of the universe. But, but if this is the goal, then, then anything that, that you do or I do as an individual is, is, is ultimately lost. There's no significance to our individual lives. But because Christians are roadies, not wheelies, it's not all meaningless. History is going somewhere. Jesus is going to return. He, he says in verse 31, when, not if, I return, all these things will happen. So, so the question for us here is, am I living sort of on the edge of my seat with, with anticipation? Do, do I live as though Jesus really is going to come back at some point? And, and what does that even look like, right? What, is it, what does it even look like to be ready for Jesus to return? Now, this is the part where if you brought a friend with you this morning or if this is your first time at Christ Communion, you're thinking, oh man, this is about to get a little weird. Um, this is kind of like a doomsday prepper moment that's coming here. What does it mean to be ready? Uh, maybe you already think this morning's a little weird. Um, but let me explain. And I think that's totally fair to feel that way, by the way. Uh, when, when we talk about Jesus' return, I think there's, there's kind of three main responses that kind of people fall into. First, maybe you're here and you're like, I don't buy any of this, and I, I think you're crazy. And, and probably your imagination is kind of populated with uh, kind of images from Hollywood and pop culture, depictions from the leftovers or, or the left-behind films and books. And you think, there's, there's no way I believe that. And, and that's good, because... Uh, those films and books, while they, they may make for good drama, don't really reflect probably all that accurately what Jesus and his followers understood about the end. So it's, it's good to stick with studying the, the, the primary source of the Bible um, when we're asking questions about the end. Because uh, a lot of those books and, and films can probably best be classified as inspired by <laughs> uh, events depicted in the Bible rather than even based on. The second response is you say, well, I'm a Christian, and, and I, believe, I, I do believe that Jesus is coming back. I, I, I do, but I'm actually not that excited about it. I kind of hate the idea. And, and you're not ready for him to return. There, there's still so much you want to do here. There's to experience things that you haven't seen, places you want to go, people you want to meet. And, and honestly, this is where I'm at sometimes. It's like, I, well, I'm glad he didn't come at the end of that sentence because there's still stuff I want to do here. But this is a misunderstanding of what is in store for us when Jesus returns. Because you see, the very best experiences, the greatest pleasures, the most satisfying work and accomplishment that we have here are just signposts that point to something much better that is coming when he returns. And honestly, 
it's really only those of us who have been blessed with sort of middle-class-ish lives in the richest country in the world who feel like what's in store here and now can compete with what is coming when Jesus returns. And the last main response, and this is probably the ideal response that we all hope that we would have at some point, is that you can't wait, that you live differently, that you feel hopeful, that you find yourself not disengaged from the here and now because of your anticipation, but you're all the more engaged because of it. Because you know that, that Jesus is returning, you, you don't despair in the face of setbacks or in the face of violence in the world in places like West Africa and, and Ukraine and Syria and Iraq and, and St. Louis. Because you know that one day all will be set right. Because you know that you are able to, in hope, anticipate in small ways by your actions, by your character and your work and, and your home, what it will li- be like to see all of creation restored when the king sits on his glorious throne. So what does it look like to be ready? Well, I love the way that New Testament scholar D.A. Carson puts it. He says, the ready person's life is characterized by selfless love to others. The ready person's life is characterized by selfless love for others. And this is really where, where Jesus goes next as he describes those who either cared for him or didn't care for him by not caring or by caring for the least of these. So we've seen that life is not meaningless. It's not all for nothing because history is going somewhere. Next, we see that life is not all meaningless because a verdict is coming. Now, we're going to start with the bad news actually first and then end with the good news. So look at verses 41 through 46. Then he, Jesus, the king who's on the throne, will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It's a strong statement, but these are the words of Jesus. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not come and visit me. Then they will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, put the righteous into eternal life. When Jesus sits on the throne, court is in session. A verdict is coming. Now, I imagine for most of us here, the idea of a verdict coming is not something that we long for. It's not something we're looking forward to. But the playwright Arthur Miller highlights the fact that deep down, every one of us longs for a verdict, that we need a verdict. Arthur Miller, in his play After the Fall, puts these words on the lips of his character, Quentin. He says, For many years I looked at life like a case at law. It was a series of proof when you, proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are or how smart, and then what a good lover, and then a good father, and finally how wise or powerful or whatever. But underlying it all, I now see there was a presumption that moved one on an upward path towards some elevation where, where God knows what, that, that at least I would be justified or condemned, a verdict anyway. 
And then the character continues, I think now that my disaster really began when I looked up one day and saw that the bench was empty. No judge in sight. And all that was remained was the endless argument with oneself, this pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench, which is, of course, another way of saying despair. We need a verdict. Without a verdict, without a judgment, our our lives are meaningless. If there is no verdict, if, as Death Cab put it, there is nothing past this, then, then Fraser Glenn Miller, the man who allegedly shot and killed three people in Overland Park out of hatred for the Jews, has exactly the same fate as the people he killed. That their lives just end. There's nothing past it. So we may wonder, to be a Christian, do I really have to believe in, in hell? And the answer is really, at one level, whether you're a Christian or not, you probably already do. Or at least you certainly don't have to be a Christian to believe in hell. Uh, Vince Gilligan, who is the creator of the the critically acclaimed series on AMC, Breaking Bad, which I I really think was one of the best written television programs, at least in the last 10 years, said this in an interview with the New York Times. I think Vince Gilligan is so insightful here. Look what he says. This is him speaking. He says, if there's a larger lesson to Breaking Bad, it's that actions have consequences. If religion is a reaction of man and nothing more, it seems to me that it represents a human desire for wrongdoers to be punished. He says, I hate the idea of Idi Amin living in Saudi Arabia for the last 25 years of his life. He says, that galls me to no end. He says, I feel like there's some sort of need for biblical atonement or justice or something. And this is what he ends by saying. He says, my girlfriend says this great thing that's become my philosophy as well. I want to believe there's a heaven but I can't not believe there's a hell. I want to believe there's a heaven, but I can't not believe there's a hell. I think we all resonate with the idea that that Idi Amin and his victims can't have the same fate. That they can't just all end up in the same place. This week I was watching the music video on YouTube for the Johnny Cash song, God's Gonna Cut You Down. It's a good video, but it's a great song. And what struck me actually when I watched the video was looking at the comments underneath. And and a number of the top comments underneath that video, if if you've heard the song before, uh, you'll get this, was the people were saying, I'm not religious, but I love this song. Because that song continually is proclaiming that that sooner or later, God's going to cut you down. You're not going to get away with it. If you're you're a liar, if you're a cheater, if you've abused people, sooner or later, God's going to cut you down. And people said over and over again in the comments, you know, I'm not really religious, but I love this song. I'm not religious, but I I get that message. Why? Because we long for justice. It's woven into who we are. And and if we don't long for justice, or if we think, no, I'm, I'm really more of a nice kind of forgiving person, that's not really, I don't really struggle with that longing to, to see people judged. It probably means either, wow, you're a really incredible saint, (laughs) or it probably means that you actually have never really experienced deep injustice in your life. Because you see, the oppressed, the abused look forward to judgment. (laughs) 
It's only the comfortable who have a hard time believing in a God who judges. Okay, but, but who actually goes to hell? Who faces the judgment that Jesus talked about in these verses? Well, these people are identified as, as the goats, right? But, but who are these goats? Who are these people that Jesus uses this metaphor of goats for? And, and they are this. They are the people who by their actions, by the way they live their lives, demonstrate that they have refused Jesus and his kingdom. Now, notice it's, it's not their actions in of themselves that do it, but their actions are a demonstration that they have rejected Jesus and his kingdom. And what I think is so interesting here is how Jesus highlights is what he says here is not what these people did, but what they didn't do. It wasn't things that they did that he listed off. It was what they didn't do. It was the fact that they didn't care for those in need. This was really sobering to me this week because sins of omission, things that we should do and don't, are just as deadly as sins of commission, the things that we should do or shouldn't do and, and, and end up doing. You see, they haven't loved what and who Jesus loves They've been disloyal to the king. I mean, you, you can't marry someone and say, I love you, but I hate everything you care about and everything that's important to you. And that's what these people said. Well, Lord, you're, you're, we belong to you, but we don't care at all about what you care about. We can't trust Jesus and not love what he loves. We can't trust Jesus and not love what he loves. Now, now let me be clear, because when you read this text, it thinks, okay, gosh, I don't know if I've given, you know, money to every person who's asked me on the street. Now, let me be clear. This doesn't mean, what Jesus is teaching here in this text doesn't mean that the right thing to do in every situation is to give money to every person that you see with a sign. In fact, in most cases, giving money in those situations is probably the least helpful and most undignifying thing that you can do, and, and it has the potential not only to hurt the recipient, but also you as the giver, because it puts us in this, this weird and wrong place of superiority. But that, what it does mean is that we should be thinking and acting creatively to care for the vulnerable and the oppressed in ways that honor the dignity and humanity of everyone involved. And we have partners in our city and we have partners around our globe who are committed to doing that kind of work of caring for the least of these. There's a list of them on our website. I would encourage you to take a look at, at some of those partners and think, how can I be involved in serving with partners who do this in a way that's healthy? Now, another question comes, but, but if God is loving, how could he send someone to hell? Well, first, it's important to know that, that God's love and his justice aren't mutually exclusive. In fact, in order for him to be a God who loves, he must be a God of justice. In order for him to be worthy of worship, he has to bring about justice. So that's the first thing to know. But second, it's also important to realize that no one will be in hell who wants to be in heaven. And no one will be in heaven who wants to be in hell. Let me say that again. No one will be in hell who wants to be in heaven. Now, let me explain that a bit. I'm not saying that people in hell won't want to leave hell. 
But people in hell do not want heaven because they do not want Jesus. Mark Twain once, re- once said, I, <laughs> I love Mark Twain. He said, I prefer heaven for climate, but hell for company. <laughs> However, the Christian faith, in the Christian faith, it's precisely because of the company, the company of Christ, that believers prefer heaven. Hell is a place where God gives people what they have set their hearts on. If they've set their hearts on something other than him, he honors that and gives them that. God gives them up to what they desire, to their foolishness. As C.S. Lewis so memorably put it, I, am will, I willingly believe that the damned are in one sense successful rebels to the end, but the doors of hell are locked from the inside. Okay, but what are the terrible images of fire and worms and darkness that we find in the Bible? What about those? Well, a recent issue of GQ magazine actually suggested that we need to, to update um, hell for the modern era. And, and in, their, in their remodeled hell, um, they included a number of things that were there. I just want to highlight a few of them for you. Um, they said you know, in kind of the updated modern hell, you have a bunch of broken iPhone chargers. Um, there's also nightly readings of Yahoo comments. Um, they listed Crocs as something that would be a feature. And this was, my, this was my favorite, actually, that there would be lots of Harvard graduates constantly angling for ways to bring the conversation back to the time at, their time at Harvard. Um, so um, that's GQ's take on sort of the, the modern uh, view of what, what hell might be like. But, but what is at the heart of these images of fire and worms and darkness? What are they really about? Well, they are just that. They're images. They're metaphors describing something far worse. Obviously, a place can't be literally dark and cold and blazing with fire and light at the same time. But both of these images capture the utter horror of a life forever bent in on itself, separated from and eternally hating the only source of goodness and life and joy in the universe. It's also interesting to note here that while heaven is made for sheep, it's made for the people who love Christ. It says that in verse 34, Jesus has prepared this place. Hell isn't actually made for people. Jesus says hell was prepared for Satan and his angels, but people who align themselves with that rebellion end up there with him anyway. But it was never designed for people. But some end up there anyway. So the question for us here is, are we living as if hell is a reality? Do we really believe that a verdict is coming? That the gavel will fall? That Does it really matter? And it matters supremely for at least two reasons, because it, it clarifies both the urgency and the glory of the gospel. It clarifies the urgency and the glory of the gospel. So first, hell motivates us to repentance, to, to love lost people, but it also shows us the glory of the gospel because it shows us what we are rescued from. You see, Jesus saves us from hell by experiencing hell for us. His love toward you isn't a warm feeling or a sentiment or a kindness. His love for you is costly. It costs him everything. And we only see this 
when we understand the reality of hell clearly. And finally, it's not all for nothing. It's not all meaningless. Because for those who are in Christ, the end is only the beginning. The end is only a beginning. Here's the good news. So if we back up to verses 34 and 37, listen to what Jesus says here. He says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom that was prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. You see, the good news is that sheep inherit the kingdom. They get to be with Jesus in his place that Jesus has prepared for them forever. So to flip the question, we said, you know, do you, I really have to believe in hell? Now, do I really have to believe in heaven? And I mean, maybe that's a silly question at one point. Of course, we all want to believe in heaven, right? But I think oftentimes what we believe about heaven, that we, we don't quite get it or there's some confused ideas. Because heaven isn't a place where we all sort of get turned into angels and are floating around in clouds playing harps and just hanging out. That's so boring. And it's not at all what the Bible describes as a picture of heaven. Really, heaven is kind of a theological code word for the future hope of Christians. You see, God made us for himself, and he is redeeming the world to bring us back to himself. There will be a new heavens and a new earth, and it will be physical as well as spiritual. God made matter. He loves it. He loves matter. He made this world, and he's going to redeem it. In fact, it's going to be the place where physicality and spirituality are at last united and fused together in a whole And passages of Scripture variously describe it as a place of of being like the best feast you've ever experienced, a marriage party, a gleaming new city, a joyful great household filled with rooms. Again, these biblical metaphors, we have to take them seriously, but, but not necessarily, again, literally, just as in our discussion of hell, these point to something way better than what they literally describe. The central feature of heaven, though, that makes it what it is, that makes it desirable, is it is the place where we get to be with God himself. If you can imagine being happy in heaven without Jesus, then you haven't understood what heaven is all about and what the gospel is all about. If you can imagine being happy in heaven without Jesus, then you don't really want Jesus. You just want his things. The joy of heaven is being with Christ. So the question for all of us is, is I'm living the end, I'm living with the end in mind. Am I living beyond just these 75 years, give or take, that I've been given? Does it really matter what I believe about heaven? Yes, because heaven means that everything matters. It means that, it means that our work matters. <laughs> yeah, what you do at your job for 40, 50, 60 hours a week really matters. 
The Apostle Paul, after explaining why the resurrection and heaven are essential in 1 Corinthians 15, he ends with this statement. He says, Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And then this is what he says, Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. What you do every single day from changing diapers and mowing the lawn and building spreadsheets and making phone calls, whatever it is that consumes your day matters. These things, your, your work done in faith and in anticipation of what is to come will in some way be swept up into the beauty of the new heavens and the new earth and contribute to it in all of its fullness when Jesus, the victorious King, sits on his throne. All of this is possible because of Jesus' death on the cross. Because if there's nothing past this, then, then Jesus' death on the cross is for nothing. It's meaningless as well, isn't it? But because there is something past this, because Jesus is coming back, his death is not for nothing For in that mysterious and surprising and unexpected turn in the story, the judge receives the verdict that we deserved and in our place receives the punishment so that justice might be satisfied and that we might be rescued at the same time. You see, because the king who is going to sit on that throne one day is the lamb who is slain. They're one and the same. The king who will sit on the throne is the lamb who is slain. In Revelation chapter 5, which is a book that speaks all about the end, we get this scene, and I just want to read it for you. And between the throne and before the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And the four creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. It is not all for nothing. It is all for Jesus the lamb who was slain. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so thankful. We're so deeply thankful that there is the promise that Jesus is coming back to set this world right. I pray that we would be found and counted as those who are loyal to that king. Help us to love your appearing for the sake that we get to be with you. It's not always easy to feel that. So work in our heart. Begin a new work in us. Help us to admit that we love our sin more than we love Jesus and that we would begin slowly, that you would break those chains in my heart, that I would begin to love Jesus far more than my sin and that heaven would be awesome to me because I get to be with him. We pray this in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen. Well, we uh, here at Christ Communion, we celebrate communion most weeks, and as Susan mentioned, we also have prayer available. This is a heavy message. It's a glorious message. It's also a heavy message. And so um, during communion, we also have people who will be available to pray with you uh, back near where there's that sign there that says prayer. 
if, if you want to have someone pray with you about something from the message or just something else that's going on in your life, we'll have people there. We'd love to do that um, during communion. Um, let me just explain, especially if you're newer here, how we do uh, communion. We celebrate it as a tangible reminder of the gospel, of the good news that we can taste and touch and feel that Jesus actually left us a meal in which we get to celebrate the good news of the forgiveness of sins. And so, like I said, if you're new here, let me explain how we do this. There's four stations around the room. There's two here in the back, and there's two up front. Um, we celebrate communion in groups, so just come with a group of three or four or five people. Just gather around. You don't have to know the people in your group. Just gather around the table together and, uh, and take the bread, dip it in the cup, and, uh, and then partake uh, in eating it together. Um, you don't have to be a, a member of Christ's community. You don't have to be an official member of our church to celebrate communion with us. If you are a follower of Jesus, you're welcome at the table. Um, if you are here this morning and that's not where you're at yet, you say, I'm, I'm just, this is my first time. I'm not even sure if I'm comfortable doing that. It's totally okay. Um, we're so glad that you're here. And I just ask you to use this time to, to think and pray. Ask Jesus, would you show yourself to me? Would you help me to trust you? Well, Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, on the night that he went, was arrested and would go to the cross, he took bread, and after he had blessed it, he broke it, he gave it to his disciples, and he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus has come and hung on the cross in our place, poured out his blood for the forgiveness of sins that we would never have to experience the wrath of hell. So come and celebrate the good news of the gospel and the forgiveness of sins. Come when you're ready.